Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I am bringing you the conclusion of the message, The Tale of Two Cities, The World Builds Babylon. Here's Pastor Eric. Now, what I want to do here is address all of this wringing of hands over the environment and give you a convenient truth that God gives to Noah and by extension to every Christian. And that is the earth will not get too hot because God keeps his promises. This is a promise that we find in scripture. Where do we find it? Well, Bob was showing us months ago in the book of Genesis, Genesis 8.22. Listen to what it says. It says, while the earth remains, God said seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. It will never cease. Now, this is a promise that God gave to Noah, and it was twofold. Number one, after the flood, God said, whoops, I hear an echo there, my back. God said that the world would never be destroyed again through a flood. Yes, it'll be destroyed one day in the future day of the Lord, but it's never going to be destroyed by a flood. Number two, he's giving us a promise that the earth will always be inhabitable. And so when it says shall not cease in blue, you could say cold will not cease, heat will not cease, summer, winter, seed time and harvest. Those things are not going to cease. God is telling us that we're not going to destroy the planet. Yes, it is always going to be inhabitable. But the left, Al Gore, and the global warming proponents are saying, no, it's not going to be inhabitable. God says that cold will never cease from the planet. Al Gore and the global warming people are saying it will cease. Which are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? Well, I'm going to believe the living God, the Holy One of Israel. Now, let me show you the failed predictions from the left. Remember, in the Bible, we're to always judge prophets who try to predict the future by whether or not their predictions come true. And if their predictions don't come true, we're not to listen to them. Listen to the failed predictions from the left-wing environmentalist over the years. And I'm just giving you a few of them. 1970, there was a prediction made that said that the urbanites were going to need gas masks in the city by 1985. Now, remember, in 1975, we gave catalytic converters to all vehicles, at least in the United States. And these catalytic converters took out nitrogen oxides. Uh, They allowed hydrocarbons to burn more fully. And so we have cleaner air than we did back then. Now, if you're going down to a city, the only way you may have to wear a gas mask is if the police is fighting it out with Antifa. You've got gas all over, but yes, the air is plenty clean. This was a failed prediction. 1989, there was a prediction that New York's West Side Highway was going to be underwater by 2019. Didn't happen. Failed prediction. 2000, Al Gore said children would no longer see snow in the Midwest by 2010. My son was born in 20. Uh, 2009, he's seen lots of snow and played in it. No, this is a failed prediction. 2002, there's going to be a famine globally, worldwide, in just 10 years. That was 2012, it was going to happen. It didn't happen. A failed prediction. 2005, Manhattan was predicted to be underwater by 2015. Didn't happen, failed prediction. By 20, or 2008, there was a prediction that by 2018, the Arctic would be ice-free. That hasn't happened. It's a failed prediction. 2015, there was a prediction that said there was only 500 days until climate chaos. 
We were all going to suffer to the point where life would be really difficult to maintain. That hasn't happened. Why? They're failed predictions. But let's contrast that with the God of heaven who always predicts that which comes about. Notice what the God of heaven predicts. Isaiah 45.1, God calls Cyrus by name 112 years prior to his birth. Cyrus, remember, was the ruler of the Medo-Persians who brought the Israelites back to their homeland. God's word was exactly accurate. Isaiah 53 accurately predicts not only the death of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, but also his being buried with the wealthy, also his resurrection, all some 720 years in advance. Now think about this one, Ezekiel 26. God accurately dis- predicted the destruction of Tyre some 254 years in advance. And by the way, these prophecies have great specificity to them. For example, in Ezekiel 26, God's word is so precise, he said that Tyre's timbers and their debris would be thrown into the water. You might think, well, how in the world is that going to be fulfilled? 254 years later, Alexander the Great wants to destroy Tyre. There's two portions of it. There's a mainland portion right on the Mediterranean, but then there was an island portion. Well, he sacked the mainland. He had no problem doing that, but he thought to himself, how am I going to get out to that island and get the rest of Tyre? Guess what he did? He threw their debris and their timbers in the water, just as was prophesied 254 years in advance in Ezekiel 26. That's the kind of precision we have in the Word of God. Where is it today from you leftists? Where is it from the global warming proponents? Where's that kind of specificity? Where's the accuracy of, oh, but God's Word has it? Why? Because God knows the future in the Bible is his word. Jeremiah 49, notice Edom was prophesied to be destroyed 122 years in advance. It happened. Micah 5.2, Christ's birthplace in Bethlehem was predicted 750 years in advance. It happened. Zechariah 9.9, Christ was predicted to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. 510 years in advance, it happened. Zechariah 11.12, Christ was predicted to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, 510 years in advance. It happened. These are only seven prophecies. There are literally hundreds, and they are all 100% accurate. Why? Because there's a God in heaven who knows the future. The Bible is his word. Brothers and sisters, which way are we going to go? Are we going to listen to the global warming elitists tell us that we can't use resources because there's no longer going to be cold? Or are we going to listen to God who said there's always going to be cold? There's always going to be heat. There's always going to be summer and winter. There's always going to be seed time and harvest. The earth will always be inhabitable. For me and my house, we're going to be trusting in the Holy One of Israel. Now, keep moving on for the sake of time. I want to start addressing some scientific issues. In particular, I want to address this notion that somehow human beings are going to destroy the planet through emitting CO2. And as I do so, I want you to realize that one of the big problems that the IPCC has and also the EPA is that when they show their data to try to prove global warming exists, they leave off data off of their charts that refutes their view. And I'll show you an evidence of that. But I want to give you a little caveat. As I show the data on the screen before you, I'm actually using the data that comes from the International Panel on Climate Change. I do believe that they have fudged that data. 
And we know that because in 2009, there was an email hack of the guru who was in charge of the data for the IPCC in East Anglia at the university in the United Kingdom. And they were caught fudging the data. But nonetheless, for the sake of argument, I'm going to be using their data. All right. First of all, a fact that's often not talked about is that from 1945 to 1975, the temperature decreased all the while CO2 was rising. Now, this is important because it calls into question whether or not CO2 is really the driver of warming at all. How can you have 30 years of temperature that's decreasing all the while CO2 is increasing? In fact, if you talk to a lot of experts who don't agree with the global warming movement, what they will say is, no, CO2 is not nearly the driver of warming that other things like the tilt of the earth is. Yes, there's variances in the tilt of the earth. There's variances in the orbit of the earth. There are variances in the solar cycles. Yes, sometimes the sun doesn't put out as much heat. There are solar flares. Those variances have far more to do with global warming than does CO2. And what's more, as I'm going to show you on the next slide, water vapor is a gas in our atmosphere that has far more to do with global warming than CO2 ever did or ever has. Let me give you another untold fact. From 1998 to 2015, those 17 years, the temperatures stalled or even decreased. All the while, CO2 emissions were rapidly increasing. Again, this refutes the idea that CO2 is the primary warming agent. Think about it this way. Why did the IPCC change the global warming scare to climate change? Well, they did so because of the 17-year period. They wanted to change the, the real risk. And they wanted to do that because they saw that the data was suggesting that things might get cold again. Well, when you change it to climate change rather than global warming, it lets them load the dice in the debate. Heads they win, tails you lose. If it's getting colder out, well, it's climate change. If it's getting warmer out, it's climate change. And so there's nothing, that, if there's too much hail, climate change, not enough hail, climate change. Too much rain, climate change, not enough rain, climate change. That's why they changed it. But dear ones, they don't have a leg to stand on when you start unpacking the data. Now, let me give you a third caveat here. There's actually, there was less sea ice in the 1970s than there is today. And that is despite the fact that there was less CO2 back then. So we have more sea ice today, even though we have more CO2 today, CO2 today than they did back in the 1970s. Again, showing you that our emission of CO2 probably really isn't a problem at all. Let me give you another one that I thought was significant. Summers in the United States were far warmer in the 1930s. In fact, really from 1895 all the way to 1940, summers were a lot hotter in the United States than they are now. And that's despite the fact, look at these averages from 1930, excuse me, from 1900 to 1930, the average metric tons for CO2 that was emitted around the world was 0.9 billion. The average from 1980 to 2010 was about 80, excuse me, 8 billion metric tons. So the summers are far warmer in the turn of the 20th century 
even though there's far less CO2 being emitted. Now we have more CO2 being emitted, and the temperatures in the summer aren't nearly as drastically warm. Again, this all calls into question whether CO2 can ever be blamed really to be a warming agent. Dear ones, if you look at the EPA charts and the charts that the UN put out, this is why they all begin at 1960. Because they don't want you to know how warm it was at the turn of the century. Because if you knew that, you would say, wait a minute, there wasn't a lot of CO2 output back then. You would put in your mind, hey, there's no truth to their claims that humanity is destroying the planet through CO2 emission. Now, let me give you a couple more things to think about. Number one, before we get off this slide, from the year 950 AD to 1300, there was a warm period that was so warm, you had Scandinavians planting crops on Greenland. They had cattle grazing on Greenland. You don't have that today, and yet they had far less CO2 than we have now. Yet Greenland's colder than it was during that time period. Dear ones, it doesn't make any sense. CO2 can't be the driver. Another fact that I just learned in my research, as CO2 increases, the warming effect of it decreases exponentially. In other words, we're right around 400 parts per million now. Let's say it increased to 800 parts per million for the sake of argument. It does not infer that you're going to have a doubling of the warming effect. In fact, it exponentially levels off. That's something that we have to know so these kids that hear all the scare tactics of the global warming alarmists will know that these things aren't true. Now, despite all of these facts in 2009, the EPA registered CO2 as a pollutant. Think about that. CO2, which is necessary for life, is now a pollutant to our own Environmental Protection Agency. Now, what they won't tell you is that water vapor, a gas in the atmosphere, contributes to 90% of the greenhouse effect. That's what creates the warming in the atmosphere. And again, there's other factors, the tilt, the orbit of the Earth, the solar cycle. But when it comes to gases in the atmosphere, 90% of the heating is caused by water vapor. In fact, notice the chart on the left that you see in red. This is an EPA graph. And by the way, I got this from a man named Gregory Wrightstone. He, does a, he wrote a book called Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. It's a very good resource. Listen to what he said. He points out that, notice on the screen, the EPA wants you to say, whoa, CO2 creates 63% of all the warming. That's not good. And then, of course, methane is 19% and all other gases, 18%. But what they don't tell you, and notice the chart on the right, this entire pie chart fits in this little nook here in the reality pie chart. Because all of that's only 10%. This whole pie chart is only 10% of what creates warming. 90% of all warming is due to water vapor. But the EPA and those at the UN do not want to say that water vapor is creating the problem. You know why? because they, they can't sell people on the idea that water is a pollutant. But because CO2 only comprises 0.04% of our atmosphere, it's just remote enough to make it the boogeyman. That's what they're doing. It's a complete sleight of hand. And this is what's being sold 
as truth to our children in the public classrooms. Dear ones, the IPC knows this. Think about this fact. In 1650, CO2 levels dropped dangerously to about 182 parts per million. I think they know that because they get it from ice core. I'm not sure how valid that science is, but I'm going with, again, their data. In 1650, the parts per million of CO2 got to about 182 parts per million. That's what it was down to. If you drop below 150 parts per million, it's almost impossible for plant life to survive. So what I want you to think about is in around 1650, there was huge famines that infected northern Europe. And right now, you and I on earth sit around 400 parts per million, this beautiful sweet spot where God has graciously given us the ability to produce so many crops so that we can feed so many people, and yet the left doesn't like it. Why? Because at the end of the day, Marxists and pantheists don't care for human beings made in the image of God. Let me leave you with two more facts before I get off of this. Number one, this is something Bob pointed out. Bob DeWay, for most of you know that he's an awesome theologian, but he was also a student of chemistry, I'm sorry, it was chemical engineering at the University of Iowa. And when he was studying, he pointed out to me that when you look at all of the data, it is exceedingly difficult to ever know what is going to happen in the future. Why? Because of the equations that are being used are so complex. One of the equations that's being used to try to figure out the future warming of the planet is called the Navier-Stokes formula. It talks about viscous flow, dynamic fluids. And the idea is you have to know all these variables that are changing, some variables that we can't know, all in order to predict what's going to happen 20 years from now. It really is an impossibility. And Bob DeWay has actually written an article showing that this is something that's impossible scientifically. Dear ones, we're being sold a bill of goods on something that simply can't be known. But people are claiming the earth is going to end in 20 years. They can't know it because the variables are too complex. I was an airline pilot for seven years. I had to look at sometimes weather reports eight times a day. They were often wrong, and we were dealing with terminal aerodrome forecasts, METARs, all sorts of things that were almost real time. And yet we're led to believe that 20 years from now, people know the complexities of our climate exhaustively. They can't know it. And so here's what I want you to consider. According to Bjorn Lomberg, if we want to fix this planet, and again, he doesn't agree with the global warming movement, he said in order to reduce the temperature just by one-sixth of a degree Celsius or a half a degree Fahrenheit, we're going to have to spend $100 trillion. $100 trillion. So think about it. We can destroy the entire world's economy, but when you're out shoveling snow and it's 18 below zero, it'll actually be 18 and a half below zero. Doesn't that make you feel all good inside? Or you're out sweating, you're golfing, it's 90 and humid, but if you destroy the world's economy by spending $100 trillion, it'll only be 89 and a half degrees in really humid. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a great bargain to me. Brothers and sisters, the good news is that we learn that we shouldn't sweat it. Why? Because Jesus Christ has it. Let's get back to the scriptures. Part and parcel to a biblical worldview 
is that Jesus Christ is not just the creator of all things, he's also the sustainer of all things. Listen to what it says. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, firstborn means he is the preeminent one, the one who has the inheritance rights. It doesn't mean that he came into existence at a point in time. He's always existed. That's the point of firstborn. Notice in verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Dear brothers and sisters, notice this last line that's in blue. What this states is not only did Jesus Christ create everything, by him it's all sustained. That means there's not one single random molecule in the universe. This means, you know those movies that you'll see in the movie theater where the asteroid is going to come and destroy all life? That should be a big yawner to you and me. Why? Because Jesus has it. The pagans don't know it. But Jesus is in control and will never allow the earth to be destroyed. I want to give a word out to the the children that might be listening to this and the kids. I have a lot of uh, sadness, I guess, for the generation that's growing up, especially in the public schools, because they're hearing that their world is being destroyed by people simply existing as people. And I want to tell you that this isn't true, that you should go out and dedicate yourself to a vocation, that you should want to have children, and your children aren't going to wreck the planet. And you should drive cars and fly airplanes and fish in boats and burn as much CO2 as you want because you're not sinning. You're a human being made in the image of God and you are not a threat to the environment. You need to know that. If you grow up in Minnesota, you can be sure that the Vikings probably aren't going to win a Super Bowl. But you also can know that it's not sinful to heat your home. And I think that's good news. Dear ones, I want to share with you some great irony We see this in Revelation 11. The great irony you're going to see here is this is a judgment that's coming upon Babylon. Because I want to end this whole series by talking about the difference between living for Babylon and living for Jerusalem. One day, Jesus Christ is coming and he's going to judge and destroy Babylon in this false religion that we've been studying about. And the great irony is that when God comes to destroy it, he's destroying Babylon not because of their mistreatment of the environment, but he's destroying them because of their mistreatment of human beings made in the image of God. That's what we're going to see. In fact, this is the seventh trumpet, and listen to the judgment that comes. By the way, the 24 elders are singing this to God as praise. Revelation eleven eighteen it says, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Dear ones, I want you to notice here at the very beginning where it says, your wrath came. Remember last week I talked about the Christian perspective on history goes from judgment, excuse me, goes from creation to judgment, but the left says, no, we're never heading towards judgment. We're going to evolve and progress towards utopia. This passage tells us, no, that isn't true. Jesus Christ is going to bring wrath upon Babylon, that false system of religion. And notice here, very carefully in this text, what he indicts Babylon for. Notice they sing God's praises because he's going to destroy those, that's Babylon, 
who destroy the earth. Now here, we have a play off of the term destroy. The second term destroy here, diaphero, literally means to corrupt morally. Not to destroy something physically, but to destroy something through corrupting it morally. Now, why is that important? Because I think it shows us some great irony that God is going to judge people, the people of Babylon, not because of their mistreatment of the environment, but because of their mistreatment of human beings made in the image of God. Babylon led human beings astray to the false religion and corruption and destroyed them. What upsets God, what really angers him, is leading human beings astray to false religion and destroying them forevermore. And so one of the things this tells us as we go out the door today is that if you have a true biblical Christian worldview, you should be devoted in your life to saving human beings from the wrath of God, not saving the environment from human beings. Again, a true Christian is devoted to saving human beings from the wrath of God, not saving the environment from human beings. That's all part and parcel to a biblical worldview. Let me leave you with some good news. Babylon is going to be thrown down, but Jesus Christ is going to come, and he's going to establish Jerusalem. Remember, I entitled this whole series, The Tale of Two Cities. Babylon destroyed, but Jerusalem is going to be exalted and created anew by the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes back to earth, the earth is going to be reinvigorated for our good and also for God's glory. And we see evidence of that, for example, in Zechariah 14.8. This is a passage, by the way, that's all about what happens when Jesus Christ returns and is enthroned in Jerusalem. It says, And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. These rivers will literally flow from the throne room of Jesus Christ. And according to Ezekiel 47, when the river flows of life into the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is going to bring forth life. There's going to be a reinvigoration of our entire planet, all for his glory and again for our good. Brothers and sisters, we're longing for this day when Jesus Christ comes and establishes his kingdom, establishes Jerusalem. That's when even the animal kingdom will be restored. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, it says in Isaiah 11.6, and they won't destroy in God's holy mountain. Never again, according to Isaiah 65, will there be a little infant who only lives a few days. Never again will there be an elderly man attacked Never again will they learn war. In fact, it says in Isaiah 2.4 that the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the whole world as the waters cover the sea. It's going to be a glorious time. And so brothers and sisters, take courage. Even though Babylon is destroying in their doctrines and in their religion a lot of things now, Jesus Christ is coming to bring a glorious Jerusalem. This is a kingdom that you and I are going to be part of. And we can rejoice that this kingdom isn't some ethereal 
kingdom where you and I are going to float on a bunch of clouds strumming a harp and it looks like one of those toilet paper commercials, you know. It's not going to be like that. Notice what it says in Revelation 5.10. Here you have the elders giving praise to God and to Jesus Christ in the throne room. And they say, you have made them, that's all believers in Jesus, to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign where? Upon a cloud? In the heavenly realm? They will reign upon the earth. Dear ones, you and I have a very exciting future to look forward to when Jesus Christ comes and establishes Jerusalem. But perhaps you're listening to me today over the internet, or maybe you're here today, and truth be told, you don't believe in Jesus Christ. You're a proponent of a different religion. Maybe you're a Hindu, or maybe you're part of Antifa, or you're into BLM, or Marxism, or whatever it may be. Today is the day to repent and to turn from living for Babylon, which is what you're living for if you're in any other faith, and turn to God in his terms. See, every human being has a problem. The problem that we all have is that we're all born sinners. And we all sin against God in thought, word, and deed. The scriptures are very clear in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Now this death that we all are going to have happened to us isn't just physical death, but one day it's eternal death, separation from God in the lake of fire. That's the greatest threat, not global warming. It's being thrown in the lake of fire. That's the real warming everyone should be concerned with. But that's where the good news of the gospel absolutely shines. Because before the ages came, God had had a plan. And his plan was to send forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time through a virgin birth, he humbled himself and became a man so that he could live the perfect life that no human being could. So that by trusting in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But Jesus also went to a cross, and on that cross he died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just, on behalf of us the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. The proof that Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sins, so that we can have the forgiveness of sins, was seen by the fact that on the third day, after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. This resurrection proves all of Christ's claims. When Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe him. Why? He was bodily raised from the dead. This Jesus ascended into the heavens bodily. He's seated at the right hand of God, where he rules and reigns, and where he protects his creation. He sustains it, but from where he's also coming again to bring judgment upon Babylon with salvation and a kingdom for his people that he'll headquarter out of Jerusalem. What must every person do? Every person is commanded by Jesus Christ in Mark 1.15 to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with turning from idolatry. Anything other than faith alone in Christ alone is idolatry. You're to turn from anything that you're trusting in and come to God in his terms, faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And if you will trust upon Christ, you'll have the forgiveness of sins in the promise of everlasting life and a glorious kingdom in Jerusalem. Today is the day to flee from Babylon and live for the city of the living God. 
And that was the conclusion of the series featuring Pastor Eric Dauma of Gospel of Grace Fellowship. We will be back next week with Bob DeWay discussing the priesthood of every believer. We are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. You can access this episode and many others, as well as years worth of articles at the website, cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We would love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this has been Jessica Kramus and Pastor Eric Dauma. We will see you next week.